Hey there, welcome to Subject Matter Season 4, where we're discovering how to build a strong company culture. We're learning from fast-moving founders and CEOs and how their cultures make customers want to work with them and talent want to work for them, in some cases completely remotely. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, the founder of Astutely, and our team is dedicated to supporting B2B leaders to build aligned company cultures at scale. And now, let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Chris Hull, co-founder and chief product officer of Otis, a Chicago-based edtech company. After 11 years as a middle school history teacher, Chris wanted to minimize the chaos of disconnected edtech tools for K-12 administrators, educators, students, and their families. Otis is one system to teach, grade, analyze, and plan, and it serves 160 unique school districts with over a million monthly users and has grown revenue by 300% annually. You can learn more about the company at otus.com, O-T-U-S.com. Chris was named a 20 to watch educational technology leader by the National School Boards Association. And this conversation was a really great one. I learned a ton and I think you're going to love it too. We spoke about how learning in an organization equals listening and why you need to be aware of what is in front of you to build a learning organization. We learned what Chris learned going through a major reorganization of his company as they scaled from 20 to 70 employees and how Otis's guiding principles of transparency, honesty, diversity, equity, and inclusion empower his team of 70. This is a fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy. Chris, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you here. Excited to be here. So I thought we could start with something that you brought up on our conversation last week, which is that writing is critical to how you think. Now, you're a proficient note-taker from what you read, and you're also an avid reader at the same time. I'd love to know why writing is so important for you as a tool for thinking and how that shows up in your note-taking system. I found that when I would read previously, I wasn't the best person at always remembering every detail. So I started to take notes, and it actually started by taking little icons in the margin of the page, but this still wasn't leading to the results I really wanted. So I really began to actually read about how to read and how to take notes. And that really started me on a path to, I use these post-its. They're a little larger than a normal post-it. And what I end up doing is I tend to write the actual synopsis or idea. I try not to quote things um, unless it's a really good quote, and then I will add a quote. But I try to make sure I write things that are in my own words and really give a summary of the idea I'm trying to capture or I'm trying to connect to. And this has really been really fruitful. So I take those notes. I then put them into a journal. And in the journal, I really group it by these ideas In the journal, I will use some of the icons for like a good quote or if there is a a connection I'll make. I really am able to write these down. And by writing them down and by putting them into my own words, it really forces me to grapple with and understand what I'm trying to think about. By doing that, I actually end up making some better connections than I would. I end up synthesizing ideas a little bit better than I had been in the past. And I'm able to kind of crystallize at a higher level these big takeaways. And then what I do is after I've put them in my notebook by hand, I then have a Google Doc where I've put them into categories. So then 
I'm able to really transfer them and put them into different sections. It might be an idea for the delivery team. It might be an idea for my personal life. It might be an idea that ends up in the product. Um, but it really helps me distill what I'm reading, force me to write it down. When you write something down, um, it has been shown to, to help you remember it. There's also this book I was reading about how when you hold the book, sometimes it can help you that like physical touch. So writing it down kind of helps transfer it. The transcribing of it really forces me to think about how I want to say it. And I try to say it as succinctly as possible to save my writing because I want to continue reading. So it's one of those things where you distill it in a really nice way that I think has been really beneficial. I think the great thing about great writing is that the simpler something is, generally the more hours has gone into making that thing compressed. If you're reading something that kind of just feels like word vomit or verbal spaghetti down a page, there probably hasn't been that much critical thinking that's actually gone into it. But by taking your approach, you're able to look for concepts rather than just memorizing. And I like the framing of the difference between reading for information on the one hand and reading for understanding on the other. If you're just memorizing quotes, sure, you might be able to pull them out at a dinner party once in a while, but you don't actually understand the concept. Whereas going through your way, it's not as efficient, perhaps. It's a harder slog, but it's actually going to help you get to the nuggets of the idea that much sooner. When I was a teacher, I was a teacher for 11 years, and I was trying to help my students who were seventh and eighth graders understand. I wanted to help them be able to read, write, and think critically and independently. And one of the things that really became clear to me during my teaching was if you're unable to write clearly, it means you're not able to think clearly. And if you're trying to explain something to someone, if you're not able to do it in a written message, it either means the idea you're trying to communicate is complex or you don't understand it as well and you kind of need to read off of something. But if you understand something at like a pinnacle level, at this really high level, you should be able to distill it into a written message that can kind of live without the context of other things. And I think that's a hard thing to achieve. I don't, I don't achieve it all the time. I know in our company, sometimes, you know, we have these Slack conversation. It's like, hey, let's jump on a video call. But it's still one of those things like, that's because there's missed understandings, there are missed opportunities. And I think if you really focus on your ability to explain something clearly, it means you understand it really well. And this seems like a pretty vital part of the Swiss army knife that every C-level executive and the founders and CEOs that listen to subject matter are going to need in their arsenal, the ability to condense an idea down into its simplest form. Because if you're able to understand that idea and explain it succinctly, that can permeate through the, the organization. And Otis, your co-founder and chief product officer of the company, I think uh, when I looked on your website, you've got around 70 employees. But there's certainly many layers to the organizational hierarchy. And so I wonder if you have seen this skill applied in Otis, this idea of being able to write clearly, being able to think clearly, and therefore communicate ideas clearly through the organization. Yeah, I think this touches on something that we're actually, it's a growing pain that we're going through. One of the things that happened is we've we've seen amazing growth. You know, Otis is a platform to help you teach, grade, analyze, and plan. And so we really, you know, with the pandemic and with, you know, instruction going remote and hybrid, we really 
seen a great increase in use. That meant, has meant we've grown. We've had our employees go from the teens to, yeah, you're, you're right on. We're in the 70s now. And that, that leads to some pain points. And one of the things that really has been a lesson we are learning is documentation and communication is really important. One of the things that I've kind of had to come to grips with is as we've grown from just a few, you know, a dozen people, yeah, you could be really involved. You heard the information directly from the source. But now that we've grown, when we need to filter information about what is our marketing team doing, what is our, you know, client success team doing, what is our delivery team doing, to be able to understand that and to be able to create a a complete comprehensive story, it really means that you need to be able to distill the initiatives and the projects of each of these groups efficiently and effectively, and then get them to other people in the organization. We do have lunch and learns, which are like these video meetings where we can get together and do a deep dive on an idea. We actually have one of those coming up later this week about our new marketing dashboard where we're going to get into it. And that's kind of something you want to do a show and tell around. But a lot of the day-to-day activities We want to be able to be processed asynchronously, learned asynchronously, and that means you have to rely on clear communication. It's one of the things that our delivery team specifically has had to deal with. We used to be a more remote development team. We transitioned to mainly in person with a few remote, and now we've transitioned back to be fully remote. And one of the key pieces of this is documenting What are the requirements you're trying to achieve? What are the objectives? And trying to ensure that if anybody comes across that documentation, they're able to understand what has been built, why it has been built, how it has been built, how it contributes to the overall vision of what we're trying to do. Part one is getting it written down, getting it written down effectively. And then part two, which we're actually finishing up now, is making it in a very organized way. One of the reasons... I had added a couple steps to my note-taking process was I started with post-its, I put it in a journal, and then I transitioned to something that was more digital. One of the reasons I, I added one of those steps about the journal was I realized I needed to really have my ideas organized. And the organization of ideas is really important. And then having them in a place that you can easily find, if you have an idea and it's written down somewhere but you don't know where... All of a sudden, it becomes like a a lost. One of the things I'm actually laughing about, one of the things I've learned about podcasts is you got to close all your apps. You got to be completely focused in the conversation. I actually closed my Slack for this call, and I actually had a quote as my status yesterday, and I can't recall it, but it's all around if you cannot explain something, you don't understand it. And I wanted to give credit to the author, and it's one of those things where I have it somewhere but I don't know it offhand. And therefore, it's one of those things. It's not easily located at this moment. So therefore, all of a sudden, you lose that potential impact it could have. And so we as an organization have really tried to make sure that we are better at documenting things, better at communicating them, but then also ensuring that they're in a place that people know where they are, they can easily be found, and so they can easily be understood and accessed. I think it's a great point the idea that it's not just about the quality of the information you have but it's the way that information is accessed here at astutely we use notion and notion can be quite an intimidating tool at first it's like building software but instead of coding you're using lego blocks so the versatility is its superpower but it also can give it quite a steep learning curve and so within this like this is our company brain essentially the collective brain A point that I think you make that is really astute here is that 
we could have the best information in Notion. We could have all the information we need to succeed for the next three years. But if our team members don't know where that information is and don't know how to apply it, then it's as good as useless. And so building process around actually accessing the information is a really important piece of this. And the the system that we are building, every system as a company is built on a set of guiding principles or values that your company might call it. And Otis has these guiding principles of diversity, equity, inclusion, respecting the teacher's roles and the, the students' perspectives. Could you speak to how those guiding principles became part of the pillars that you use as your North Star at Otis? I think we all have guiding principles as you articulated really well. And the idea is when you are able to embrace those and articulate those, they can become that North Star to be guided by. So where Otis started was actually in the classroom. I was a teacher and it actually began in my classroom and one of my colleagues who's one of the other co-founders. And what ended up happening was the guiding principles of trying to maximize learning for every student was embedded in what we were trying to do. We wanted to be an efficiency tool for the teachers and the students because we were, I was a teacher and we were trying to help our students learn. And so all of a sudden we really began to reflect, how are we going to achieve the goal, the objective to maximize learning for every kid? How are we going to get there? So we started to build tools around the ability to teach, which is the ability to facilitate learning, the ability to grade, which is the ability to measure what a kid has learned or needs to learn, to be able to analyze all this information about a kid in one place, and then to be able to plan how to all of a sudden get into this loop about getting back to teaching, grading, analyzing, and then doing it all over. But one of the things that was really key to us was understanding, okay, what are some of our obstacles here? And one of the things we realized here was, one, we really wanted to have this level of respect. Not that it's like, um, no, ma'am, yes, sir, but this understanding, we have to be aware, we have to listen to where educators and students are, and we also help family members. They're one of our stakeholders, too. We need to be able to understand what are they able to do, what is their data literacy, what is their technology literacy, what is their understanding. And so one of our guiding principles is also this idea of like transparency, honesty, and this idea of we want to put everybody onto the same page. We want everybody to have the information. So we want our administrators and our families to see how a kid is doing. I have um, four kids and they all use Otis, which is always kind of fun. My daughter is a first grader. If I ask her how school is going, she'll say, fine. What did you learn? She'll respond with stuff. I don't get all the details, but with something like Otis, I can see more into what's happening. I can engage in that conversation. And so all of a sudden, this idea of being on the same page can help us then respect what does a teacher need? What does an administrator need? And this idea of respect of, okay, let's respect the expertise of teachers, of educators, of families, but then the same exists in our delivery team. Within Otis, in the internal communication and collaboration and problem solving, we want to ensure that we respect the, the points of view of the technologists we have. Like, I am not a technologist. I use technology as a tool to help me solve problems, but I'm not a developer. I code at probably a kindergarten level. And this idea, I need to rely and respect the points of view of our team members to be able to achieve this. The last three you mentioned, which is really diversity, equity, and inclusion, really gets to the fact that we want to level the playing field for education. It kind of relates to our notes conversation. We need to make the ability to learn accessible for anybody and everybody. And one of the things that sadly happened with the pandemic was 
the dichotomy between the haves and the have-nots actually grew. The people who had a one device to every kid, all of a sudden, they were able to access things online. They were able to continue their learning. But for kids who didn't have internet or didn't have a device, all of a sudden, there was just a difference about what was possible for them. And we really want to be able to address that. And by providing a system that can be used by everyone, we think we provide that access. We provide that ability to really talk about how each kid is doing. And we think we need to understand the, the needs of the diverse population that is our world. We want to make sure that all stakeholders are there. We want to be inclusive. We want to drive equity. I think there are some really great uh, conversations happening in the world right now involving equity. The idea is it doesn't mean equal. It means providing the Again, we can go back to that word access. We need to understand there's a great political cartoon where, you know, these kids are looking over the fence at a baseball game. And it's like, okay, if you have a, again, like a toddler who might be short, they might need a, a larger thing to stand on to see the field. It's one of those things that I think really can become beneficial for us to understand. And those guiding principles then determine what we should build and why. So we want to build this profile of a kid that's more comprehensive so we can help each kid. And by doing that, we know we, what tools we need to build. We want to be able to build things that can be actionable. So that also informs us of what we need to be able to do. I think you make a couple of really interesting points there. One is the fact that the data allows you to level the playing field in quite a comprehensive way. And this, I think, links back to what we were just talking about. And a concept that you've just helped me connect is that reducing asymmetries in information, so making information transparent and open, actually creates empathy. Because if you're able to see your daughter's learning progress in a very visceral level to say, this is where she's got to, this is where she's faltering, this is where she needs help, you're able to understand her learning experience that much more. And so if we're able to create products that close the information gap between what people might not know that we know and what we do actually know, we're able to put ourselves in the shoes of that other person that much more effectively. And so I'd be interested to dig into this a little bit. How do you think about the the role that empathy can potentially play when you are building your product. What interests me about Otis is that it's a product that's being built for both teachers and for students. Both have to have really clear experiences and valuable experiences for it to work. So how do you think about bridging the gap or using empathy to bridge the gap between this teacher experience and the student experience? When you have a better understanding of who someone is, if you have a better understanding of what they've gone through or what they've been through or what their passions are, their interests, you begin to have an empathy. You begin to have a connection with them. To learn is an action that requires effort. And learning itself is difficult. And it requires this effort that means you have to have buy-in. And so at the teacher-student level, students need to buy in to why they're learning Oftentimes, it's because of their teacher connecting with them, but also for the teacher to be able to really maximize the learning for each kid, they need to know about that kid. I had a student, great kid, phenomenal kid. He's actually gone on. He's in college now. It's incredible. He's the first, first kid to go on to college. But in seventh grade, there was something missing. Like I was trying to connect to him. I couldn't quite get it. And what ended up happening was I learned later, midway through the year, that he had lost his father in fourth grade. It was one of those things where all of a sudden that knowledge 
filled in pieces. Like I, again, I, it was a great kid. He was great in my class, but all of a sudden, like it made more sense things about like, you know, he'd always talk about like, Hey, can I bring my, my brother and sister to the soccer field? And I, I was always like, yeah, but I, like, I was like, I was wondering why, you know, it's like, and all of a sudden things became much clearer. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh wow. I understood this. I understood this connection. All of a sudden things became clearer to me of what he needed, what was his impact, some of his reasoning, some of his questions all made sense. And it really allowed me to better see this student. And it was all because I learned something that just took time to learn. When we're able to do that, when we're able to listen and learn, what are pain points? What is the struggle? In organizations, if we go outside of education, I think it's important for company leaders to understand and to have that empathy with their employees, understanding, having those conversations, being able to understand what are the challenges being faced because there are things that all of a sudden that empathy can unlock and it can really help build a really successful culture that allows you to be more efficient, effective, but also more understanding. So if you're thinking about the time that you've spent with the Otis team, the conversations that you've had, are there any times where you have been able to make a different decision because of your ability to empathize with someone or because you were able to understand something from their perspective? I'm trying to understand how empathy can practically show up in the decisions that you make and the conversations that you have as chief product officer. We committed to a reorganization. And we committed to this reorganization because as we're growing, sometimes you have to shuffle things around. And so we really shuffled our delivery team into three product teams. And those product teams all have members of what we call our platform teams, which are in other other companies might call them guilds, but we might have like a UX guild, but we have like a UX team and a backend team and a frontend team. And we wanted to put them all onto product teams so that we could have better cross-pollination of ideas, collaboration. And it was during these conversations about this reorg, about how did we want to do it, that it became clear that we needed to empower the team. I realized that there was this desire to be able to take more ownership, autonomy of the decision. So during the rollout of our reorganization, what we ended up doing is we set the end mission and vision out there. We defined it clearly. This is what we want. We want more collaboration. We want to define a project process. We want to be very iterative. We want to make sure that we are doing uh, our prioritization cycle so that we're taking the voices of our client success, of our delivery team, of our sales team, of our users all into account. And we basically said, okay, this is the end vision. Let's empower the different teams, the different groups to build out what they need. And it was much more self-guided. A lot more autonomy was shifted to them. And that was through some feedback. Now, it wasn't universal. It wasn't everybody wanted this, but enough people wanted it. And through conversations, I really thought it would be beneficial. And it, I'd harken back to some things I learned when I was teaching. You know, when I was teaching, it was sometimes like, I wanted my students to learn how to read, write, and think critically and independently. Well, I'm going to let them, we did these current event articles, and these articles were about any topic they wanted. The subject matter here does not matter. What does matter is your ability to clearly define the situation and answer the basic questions of who, when, where, why, how, and connect it to social safety. That's what matters. The topic doesn't. We're working on these mental skills. Because of that, in Otis, the same idea applied. 
I am not going to be living the day-in, day-out processes of the ceremonies and of the documentation methods or how things are handed off or who should be accountable. I want to be aware. I might have like contributing ideas, but I'm not the one living that day-to-day. And so by turning it over the team, you know, it had a steep learning curve. I used to think a steep learning curve was bad, but sometimes if it's steep and you can get to that point of learning faster, it can actually be good. So all of a sudden, In March, we began to unlock it. Things began to fall in place. Same in April. And now people feel better about our end process created that meets our vision. We're living it. We're still iterating on it. I don't think you ever stop iterating on any process. And the idea is it's now owned by the teams. So our product manager or our, we have a call them technical program managers or our developers or our team leads, they bought in. They defined it. If there's something that needs to be tweaked, they have more ownership. They feel more accountability for it. It's just been really exciting. I could have determined it. I could have written out, hey, this is how it's going to go. But the way I would have defined it would have needed to be iterated. But then it would have been them iterating on my vision of everything. And it was one of those things by giving the actual details over while still having a clear objective defined I thought it was a really successful project, and it really came about from the advocacy of our team about wanting to have more ownership, wanting to be more collab, wanting to achieve these things, which we've always said. They're part of our guiding principles. They're part of this idea of respect and the idea of inclusion. And there's sometimes when you go from 20 people to 70 people that you you kind of have to do a reshuffle. You have to do it. And it doesn't mean you failed. It just means you came to a pain point, and it's something that you can do better. There's a couple of threads we could we could go down there. I think the first thing that comes up is the parallel between how Otis handled this of giving the team members autonomy in being able to drive their own experiences to learn on their own terms. And obviously the way that the teachers and the students learn and uh, evolve on their own terms with Otis. There's an example here which comes to mind as a counterpoint, and that is a man called Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes is the inspiration behind the film The Aviator, and he was born into a fairly wealthy family, and he built up an aviation business where he was making planes, and he famously sold these huge military contracts to the United States Air Force, to the military. And uh, his organization was set up in a way that every decision had to go through Howard Hughes. So as the CEO, he would be telling people, I need this nut or bolt tweaked on the plane, or I don't like that design, or we need to do the wings differently. And eventually it just folded because he had hundreds of people who weren't able to be autonomous in their decision-making silos. The flow through of the organization had to come through the CEO. They had to come through this megalomaniac who wanted to control everything. And so if you build your company like that and your employees don't have the autonomy to be able to make their own decisions, inevitably you're going to get stretched to the breaking point. And the kind of 180 flip of this, I think Steve Jobs has some good advice where he says, I don't hire smart people to tell them what to do. I hire smart people so they can tell us what to do. I'd like to dig into the idea of the vision a little bit more concretely now, because this is something that's come up a couple of times in our conversation so far. And the way that you approach the vision, you've mentioned that it needs to be very clear on what the product should achieve 
and the the business requirements. And I think there's a parallel here between what we spoke about right at the start of being able to clearly communicate clear ideas to have them scale through the organization. So when you are thinking through the vision of the product, Chris, when you're thinking through what the product needs to achieve in the next 12 months, three years, five years, are there any frameworks or heuristics that you use to communicate that to your team to make sure that they are aligned with the company vision, but that they still have the autonomy to be able to innovate and experiment on their on their own? We try. I, I would have to ask others how successful we are. And one of the things we try to do is we try to really articulate, again, it keeps on coming back to these like guiding principles. We've actually tried to create our four focuses for next school year. And our four focuses for next school year really get into, number one is scalability, but also sustainability. And sustainability is really for the internal workings. You know, one of the things when you build a company as quickly as we have and you've grown, there is something called tech debt. But this idea of we need to be able to continue to scale as we continue to grow. We want to be able to grow 10x, you know, 15x. We want to be able to be ahead of that curve. We want to be sustainable. We want to pay off some of this tech debt. We want to make the the delivery team's lives happier. How would you define tech debt for everyone listening? Because everything in development requires you to move quickly, right? We've wanted to be very responsive. We've sometimes borrowed from what would be the best practice of doing something. So if the best practice of doing something would take two months, but we only have one month to deliver something, we might all of a sudden incur some tech debt. We might all of a sudden not do something as performant or as well, or we might cut a corner here that wouldn't impact maybe our users, but maybe impact our internal team. So it's a way of doing things a little bit faster. In addition, tech debt can sometimes be just a matter of technology improving. So if all of a sudden we're on a call and all of a sudden, like, have you updated to the latest version of the browser you're using. Well, if you haven't, your browser might have tech debt. It might not be as performant. It might not be as up to date. So is this idea of like, do you want to take the time to update your browser? Do you want to quit your machine? Or are you going to wait till tomorrow? You might have incurred some of it. And so there is this idea of you haven't done everything to the perfect specification and therefore you've incurred some tech debt. But Tech debt also emerges just over time. A year from now, there might be a better way of doing something that wasn't known to us today. So all of a sudden, we might have to go back and update something to the the newest and best way of doing it. And so there's this constant battle between, do you want to try to drive to perfection or are there diminishing returns? And that's why I kind of joke that I think every company has some tech debt. There was a great article about Google when a, a new developer came in. They were like, man, why did our the previous person do it like this? And they fixed it. They updated it. Didn't really make it that much better, but they took away the tech debt. Well, all of a sudden, a new developer came in, looked at the same code that the second developer looked at, and they did the same thing. So it's kind of this, there's a diminishing return, but you always have to be conscious of it. And you always want to be paying it forward. You want to be cutting it down. If we take this concept of the tech debt being a penance that you pay because you haven't done everything to perfect specifications and that uh, this allows you to move quickly. If you're working with a team of engineers and you're trying to get them to move quickly while still being cognizant of the tech debt, how do you go about communicating that vision? Because as you said earlier, coding is not your skill set. 
it is product. And so how do you think about crossing the the bridge between your vision for what you think the product needs to do and communicating that clearly to the development team? Yeah, so we have an amazing CTO, Corey Maxey, and he really helps with that balance, right? Because we have that balance there. And so it really becomes framing of what are those like focuses. So I had gotten to the one, which is scalability and sustainability. The other three are UX, data visualizations, and then improving some functionality. And the idea becomes, okay, with these four focuses, we need to balance time. And so one of the things we do is in our prioritization meetings, which happen every eight weeks, we define the projects we're going to focus on. So each product team is given two to three projects that they're going to focus on for those eight weeks. And so one of the things we do to start is we balance our projects between product-driven and more technical focus, which could include tech debt. And so we drive it that way. So that's one way to have a balance. We have a balance of the projects. We're shooting for about 50% so that we can have 50% technical, 50% product. But the other thing we try to do, and it's definitely an aspiration that we're trying to do, is we want to give 80% of our developers time to these projects, but then 20% of time to just general work. And those could be things that are then able to like, hey, during this 20% time, we don't have any pressing needs here. Take that time to do what will make your life better. That's what we kind of say, the developer or delivery team happiness. And so that there might be things where we can cut build times. We can all of a sudden do things that will make their lives better. Or maybe there's a project that they are really passionate about. We want to find that balance. And so by creating those focuses, by balancing our projects that we're focused on so that they have both technical and product needs represented, trying to hit that 50% and this 20% time, we're trying to give them that framework so that they are going to hit it. A, we're going to kind of mandate it with our project selection. And then B, the balance is each product team has a product manager and a team lead. And those two are working and it's we're trying to set them up kind of like a mini startup themselves. And we want them to kind of have a really good relationship to kind of negotiate. Hey, we have this product feature that really would be beneficial to our users. Okay, that's just going to take a day or two. We use points. That's going to take like five points. Okay, cool. Now we also maybe a week later, hey, we've realized that this, you know, unit test needs to be improved. We Something was out of scope. Let's spend the day or two to update that. And so by having, again, I'm kind of outside of that, right? I'm not in that day-to-day conversation about how to use every day, every hour, every point. But because we have the representatives of the product manager and the team lead, which is a developer, we are able to hopefully have that balance. And so it's kind of that three-pronged approach of here are overall focuses. As long as it fits one of those buckets, great. Project split so that it's balanced by project, but then also giving this additional time so that we can do some small iterative things that might be they're smaller than a project. And notice there how in none of those things were you telling the delivery team how to do their job. You were just creating constraints around what they want to work on. And this idea of the 20% of time for developers being spent on wider work reminds me of Google's moonshot policy and how for their engineering team, 
they say you can have 10% of your time. In fact, it might be wider than just engineering, but for, for Googlers, they're allowed 10% of their time to work on what they call moonshot projects, projects that are just wildly out of scale, but something that really excites them and interests them. And at this point, because Google has such a funnel of talent, quite a few of those moonshots have actually been incorporated into the G Suite, into the Google Cloud, for example. And what this does as a mechanism is that you are empowering your staff by saying, I value your ideas. It's no longer just, here's the strategy that I'm setting from top down, or here's the vision and you're going to help us get there. They actually get some autonomy to decide what does the vision actually look like? And if you do have a successful moonshot, if part of that 20% does pay off into something, I can imagine that they get more resources, you're able to have a serious meeting about where to develop that, that idea. And one of the, uh, the concepts that we spoke about on our call last week, Chris, is this idea of infinity loops. Could you describe the concept of infinity loops and how Otis applies this model into your business? Yeah, so something I learned from you know lean startup is this idea of you know build, measure, learn, and then build, and you kind of create this loop so that it's iterative. And what we wanted to do with education with our product, and we tried to do it internally as well, is this idea of we want to be able to create that infinity loop within Otis. So our platform, as I had referenced before, we want to be able to create this idea of okay, I need to teach, so. I'm going to have the ability to facilitate resources or activities or a lesson for people to complete, for my students to complete. Once they've completed that, I then want to measure their learning. And that's really through our grading ability, our ability to have any type of assessment you can think of, you can really be able to achieve. And so all of a sudden, you've gotten this measurement of where kids are based upon what they've learned from the lesson that you've shared with them. And now you want to analyze this information. And then you're able to create a plan and to be able to progress monitor against that plan. How are they doing? Are they achieving it? And then all of a sudden, based upon all that you've looked at, you go back to teaching. And so all of a sudden, now you're teaching things that you might have missed or you might need to supplement or you might need to add on to. And then you repeat it over and over again. And so that's really informed our our product delivery, but it's also informed things internally. You had mentioned this idea of empowerment. I should be very clear. I think my... We want to get to 20% time. There are some times where COVID happened. Some of the team, we had too many projects and that 20% time kind of got lost. But the team understood because it's our aspiration to have it. But one of the things we also do, and it relates to this empowerment, is anybody can write a project proposal. And so anybody can come up with this project proposal and it goes into the prioritization. And so what ends up happening is this infinity loop and happens again. The developers are part of the process. Anyone can write a project proposal. We evaluate the project proposal. All of a sudden it can go into our queue, it can get built, and then we do it all over again. And so this idea of an infinity loop is the idea that what you put your time and effort into results in an outcome that you can then put back into the same loop to get even more rewards out of it, more benefits out of it. And it allows you to have a process to where we want feedback. We constantly want feedback from anybody and everybody. I think it's one of our one of the ways Otis is great. One of the elements that makes Otis great is this idea of we're constantly open to feedback. We want our feedback loop to be an infinity loop. We want our users to use Otis, understand Otis, get the benefit out of Otis, 
tell us what they need to improve, what we need to improve. What do we need to make easier for you? Then our hope is that we build it. We then let the users use it. And then all of a sudden they give us more feedback. What could be easier? And we want to do this in all sorts of ways. We try to make the infinity loop as short as possible so it can be as iterative as possible. So we have an amazing UX team at Otis. They're absolutely incredible. They work with you know, mock-ups and prototypes so that we are not only iterating on the actual product, but on some of the ideas we have to solve the pain points that we've heard from our feedback. This is all things that once it becomes part of your mindset, even though it's not on our page, our website as a guiding principle, it really is one of our core beliefs of this loop of, you know, getting feedback iterating on it, learning from it, and then doing it all over again. And then we just kind of plug and play. What is What are you putting that into? Like same with marketing. I know our marketing team does the same thing. We have an idea for an ad. We're going to do an A-B test. We're going to try out A. We're going to try out B. We're going to look at the results. We're going to iterate. Maybe A was better. Maybe B was better. This is why. And then we iterate on it. And it really, the the information you gain feeds what you should do next. And in all of that scenario, the learning actually compounds. That's what um, really stuck with me from this is uh, it reminds me of a line that my 82-year-old uncle shared with me a while ago. He said, Ben, one never stops learning. And today it's as much as you can unlearn as fast as you can uh, relearn new skills. And this idea of the infinity loop of being able to build, then measure, then learn consistently and having a very tight cycle on that is going to make the learning that much more impactful. And that brings us to our last question for today, Chris, because one of the things that is so important for founders, for C-suite leaders, is how quickly that their staff can actually learn. Putting the infinity loop to one side now and thinking about learning new skills and upskilling yourself as a workforce, how do you think that the CEOs of the future can equip their staff to learn as effectively as possible? And if there are any trends in how ed- the education space is developing that you can speak to here, I think that would be uh, interesting to bring up potentially as well. Yeah, I think it comes from being always willing to listen. And I think one of the things is that ideas can come from the top, but they can also come from the bottom. And the idea is if you're really trying to constantly enable your staff to learn, it's to be able to understand what do they need and where are they at. We have this amazing opportunity for people at Otis to be able to do professional development. At first, we we kind of had said that it's going to be, hey, everybody can do one PD a year. And it was kind of like cost aside. Then it was like some people wanted to do classes online and things like that. So as a CEO, I think it's really valuable to understand who is your staff, to be able to talk to them, learn from them. What are they passionate about? Maybe you can get everybody like our QA team was able to do an entire conference together. And that was like hugely impactful. We listened to them of what they needed. And it sounds kind of silly, but this idea of being able to listen because all of the ideas I've had, all of the things that I've learned aren't from me, they're from others. And so one of the big lessons we have from the third co-founder, Andy, is you always have to be willing to listen. And the idea comes reading articles, reading books, listening to other co-founders, listening to other you know, chief product officers would be my role, listening to your staff, being cognizant of what is there, because 
if you can synthesize something to what is the pain point being felt, if you can focus on the problem, hey, this is a problem that is being experienced, then remedying that or addressing that becomes easy. So it's like, how do we get our staff to learn? Okay, well, what are the obstacles preventing learning? Is it the fact that we're all remote? Is it the idea that we really need to make it collaborative. You know, sometimes like a a book club can be really effective because it's like you're reading with someone, you're accountable to someone. You know, this can be really something our our client success team had an amazing book club and it was one of those things that it came from a member on their team. It got to our chief learning officer and he was like this is a great idea. This is a great book. Let's get into it. And all of a sudden the buy-in became so great that they had this entire book study that was supposed to last like a month and it ended up being a three-month project. It reformed how they reorganized themselves. It really framed some really exciting things that they're doing. We offer these uh, PD lives that are kind of off of Peloton where we offer like free professional development for teachers on the go, five-minute, ten-minute bits. And it's like that all came from the willingness to listen and the willingness to understand, hey, this is a problem that we need to address now let's dive in and collaborate and problem solve together. And sometimes when you're at that C-suite level, you actually get the the problem distilled in a way that's actually uh, more broad, and that actually can be helpful. You're not getting into the specific of this little detail is wrong. Again, going back to your to Hughes comment about you know the bolt needing to be a certain way. The idea is like you could see something bigger. Oh man. Hey, how are we defining client success at Otis? Oh, okay. Let's really get into a book. Let's define it. Let's, let's have this happen. And I don't know how helpful that is, but I think the idea is if you're listening and if you're constantly reflecting, I think you'll identify ways to get better. And I've found that there is always things that can get better. So it's, it's a good mindset for that I've adopted and I think has helped me. I think that's a brilliant note to end on, Chris. The uh, the idea of listening and constant reflection equals continuous progress. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I've certainly learned a lot from the conversation. And if people want to keep up with you and keep up with Otis, where can they find you online and follow your journey? Our Otis website is www.otis.com. That's O-T-U-S dot com. Really, this is where you can learn what initiatives we help address, what our tools and platform are able to do. It's a really exciting time for us as we're adding more and more things. We're adding more and more clients. You can learn a lot there at uh, otus.com, O-T-U-S.com. And then for me, um, on Twitter, I'm at O-T-U-S Hull, H-U-L-L, which is my last name. Also LinkedIn, Chris Hull. I love to have conversations. Again, I'm constantly looking and wanting to learn. I've appreciated our conversation, Ben. It was a great pre-call. You actually gave me a couple book recommendations that I have to dive into still. And, And I think that's the exciting part of these conversations. You learn and we always have the opportunity to learn from others. So excited that we could have this conversation. You heard it here first, guys. Go and hit Chris up on Twitter, LinkedIn. He'd be happy to have you. Chris, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Hey, it's Ben here. Just before you head off, one quick thing. This podcast teaches you the skill of empathetic communication. And if you're interested in accelerating your empathetic communication and to start applying it to your brand and business, we've created an actionable five-step checklist which breaks down the exact steps you need to take to unlock this skill and start creating messages that connect with your customers and employees' heads and hearts. You can download it for free over on our website, weareastutely.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Subject Matter.